Good morning. In today's headlines, Vermont officials are calling flooding in the state the worst since Hurricane Irene. We took a look at the aftermath and at a California landslide that left a dozen homes clinging to the side of a cliff. Extreme heat across the U.S. from Florida to Arizona. We share what some people are doing to stay cool. Ukrainian President Zelensky called NATO's decision to withhold membership absurd. The president of the war-torn country is set to meet with President Biden later today. Former President Trump suffered a legal setback yesterday. The Justice Department reversed its earlier position in E. Jean Carroll's defamation lawsuit. Junk fees, withholding perks, and opening accounts without customer permission. Bank of America has agreed to pay a hefty payout to settle multiple claims with regulators. And an entrepreneur who started a nonprofit at age 15 is 3D printing schools. She tells us about her business now years down the road. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, July 12th. And yeah, of course, the focus of the NATO summit was on Ukraine. But what about China? Oh, well, yeah. NATO leaders said that China is increasingly challenging the international rules-based order and also threatening Taiwan and refusing to condemn Russia's invasion. So we're going to take a closer look at what happened at the summit in terms of Ukraine's bid to join NATO. Mm, yeah, looking forward to that. And uh, we're starting off by looking at some severe weather conditions across the U.S. Extreme heat from Florida to Arizona had people looking for ways to stay cool yesterday, while residents in Vermont deal with the aftermath of intense downpours and flooding in the state's capital. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg brings us more. Torrential rains this week in Vermont caused rivers and streams in the region to swell and caused flooding in the state. City officials say a dam upstream from the state capital, Montpelier, is holding at max capacity and needs to release water into the north branch of the Winooski River. That could aggravate what the National Weather Service has called catastrophic flooding in Montpelier's picturesque downtown district. Going downtown, just realizing that you had water up to here. Uh, was absolutely insane. Economically, things haven't really been the greatest for a lot of people right now, and I think, unfortunately, this could be kind of a breaking point for a lot of people financially. Business owners are cleaning up their shops and assessing the damage. I'm crying. My entire store is upended. My freezers are all over the place. Rescuers and firefighters used rafts to provide help to residents. Officials say search teams have rescued close to 120 people from their homes and cars by boat, and that more people were trapped at their homes in remote areas. Meanwhile, extreme heat across the southern U.S. has Americans looking for ways to stay cool. Many in Florida headed to the beach. Happy that our Airbnb has a pool. Glad that the Atlantic is nearby. <laughs> I like it. I like tanning, so <laughs> I love the weather and I love the sun, so this is great. Temperatures in Houston, Texas reached 100 degrees on Tuesday. Some families decided to cool off at water splash areas to find relief. It's so hot out here in Houston. So um, it's good, you know, that we come out here with the kids to cool off a little bit. Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, and Southern California have seen 100 degree plus temps and excessive heat warnings this week. Salvation Army workers set up a heat relief station in Phoenix to hand out cold bottles of water. And a weekend landslide in Southern California left 12 homes clinging to the side of a canyon. The homes were declared unfit to be occupied and evacuated Monday night after some of the structures collapsed. The Rolling Hills Estates City Council issued a local state of emergency on Tuesday. It's unclear what caused the landslide. 
No injuries were reported. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. We're going to Europe now. Ukraine fell short of its goals at the NATO summit, despite leaders reaffirming their solidarity for the country and agreeing to speed up its membership. The war-torn country had hoped for either an invitation to join the alliance or at least a specific timetable for membership. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on that and what's on the agenda for the final day of the international meeting. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says governance and corruption are issues blocking immediate membership as well as an ongoing war. Uh, I think all allies agree that when a war is going on, uh, uh, that's not the time for uh, 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 making Ukraine a full member of the alliance. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller also highlighted the danger of such a step. Because it would instantly, it would instantly put the United States in a shooting war with Russia. While President Joe Biden supported the wording used on Ukraine's membership. We agree on the language that, uh, that uh, we proposed, that you proposed, uh, relative to the future of uh, Ukraine being able to join NATO. Zelensky reacted to word of the snubbing on Twitter, saying, It's unprecedented and absurd when a time frame is not set neither for the invitation nor for Ukraine's membership, while at the same time, vague wording about conditions is added even for inviting Ukraine. The Ukrainian president says the move will motivate Russia to continue its terror, adding that, quote, uncertainty is weakness. The broadside from Zelensky could renew tensions at the summit. This shortly after it saw a burst of goodwill following Turkey agreeing to advance Sweden's bid to join NATO. Biden will meet with Zelensky on Wednesday and then give his major speech later on in the day. He plans to tell world leaders that NATO allies are at a high point of unity coming out of the summit. The president will stress that it's important to build on that unity to tackle other important challenges, such as climate change, emerging technologies, and threats to the rules-based international order. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And more on the NATO summit in Vilnius. The alliance's leaders have approved the most comprehensive defense plan since the Cold War ended. That's to address what they call their two main threats, Russia and terrorism. It calls for 300,000 troops to be at high readiness, this while the focus of the first day was Ukraine. NATO says the country can join once members agree and conditions are met. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said they have agreed to a package that will bring Ukraine closer to the alliance. And we're going to get some in-depth analysis on this right now from retired Colonel John Mills, who's also a former director of cybersecurity policy at the Department of Defense. Thanks for coming on the show today, John. And what are the conditions that need to be met for Ukraine to join NATO once the fighting stops? Well, uh, thank you, Kevin. Uh, good morning. I think uh, the, the secretary mentioned that, and, and that is governance and corruption issues. Governance and corruption issues. It was always a bit of a stretch. It's been kind of consistent policy across numerous administrations that Ukraine was just a, a, a bridge too far from being a, a NATO a member. Uh, there wasn't a compelling reason. It's also been a, a distinct red line by Russia uh, that uh, do not allow uh, Ukraine in. Now, there are different categories, and I'm wondering if this is being uh, addressed and not necessarily publicly announced. There are different categories of memberships. There's, there's two or three different tiers of observer status. 
Uh, it might not have not been noted. Uh, both Japan and South Korea were at this meeting. Why? Because they are uh, have an official uh, high-level observer status. Also Australia. So Australia might have been there. I worked to get Taiwan in as an observer, and they are uh, they do have some kind of observer status. And I don't know the current state of affairs of that. So that it's could very have been interesting an, that you mentioned that observer status, John. I want to know. Do you see the country being able to meet these requirements? And when do you see that happening, if so? I honestly, I think uh, these are these are large issues. It'll take a while. I, I don't know if you can have a clean audit of a country. Uh, Department of Defense has gone through clean audits for years, never passed one. And it's still the Department of Defense. Uh, can, uh, it's going to take a long time to really understand what's going on. There is a large money laundering operation going on in using Ukraine, and that has to be addressed. Yes, definitely. And of course, we know that President Zelensky said it was absurd that NATO did not provide a timetable for the country to join the alliance. What do you make of this, given that the meeting was intended to show solidarity to Ukraine? Well, Zelensky's uh, negotiating for his country is what sees uh, best, what he sees best. However, there has been a huge amount of ordinance given to his country, and they've they've very uh, they very innovatively and well used it. But uh, he can't have everything immediately, and I think jumping straight to NATO membership, well, we, we'd accept a country that is at war, which means the rest of the NATO partner partnership countries would be at war. Uh, that doesn't seem like a, there's a compelling national security imperative for that at this time. Yes, and further on that point, there was confirmation of new weapons deliveries in this summit, and they also created a coalition to train Ukrainian pilots to fly F-16 aircraft. I want to ask you about this, too. Some Eastern European NATO countries are more open to accepting Ukraine quickly, but the first-generation treaty centers like the U.S. are a little more cautious, and that's because there are fears that if they do speed up this membership of Ukraine, it could provoke a direct conflict with Russia. What's your stance on this? Well, yes, we'd be accepting a country into the membership, which would immediately uh, trigger the the, uh, Article 5, which means uh, NATO is at war to protect a partner nation. So there, there is a little bit of uh, it's, it's a, a non sequitur to accept a country in that is at war, which would trigger the rest of the countries to be at war. So uh, I think we have to deal with this very, very carefully and slowly. And beyond the Ukraine war that we're seeing now, what does NATO have to gain from Ukraine being a member? That's a great question, and I think that has not been properly articulated. It expands acreage and land space, so what? And what does it really offer? Uh, It's deeper in toward uh, essentially Central Asia. Uh, Russia, in their view of the world, which can be quite paranoid, would look at this as an absolute attempt to take down Russia. That's the way they look at it, right or wrong. And I've been in many uh, bilaps with uh, Russian officials. They are they are extremely paranoid, no matter what the question is. And uh, so uh, we have to handle this. I think we want to support Ukraine with life sustainment and basic war material uh, to make sure it's an equal and fair fight. And they've been doing very well. Uh, we want to make it a level playing field. But the main game is China, 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 China. Well, retired Colonel John Mills, I do really appreciate your analysis on this today. Thank you, Kevin. Always an honor to be on your show. In related news, Ukraine will be getting assistance from the G7, 
The forum, including President Biden, agreed unanimously to send a new aid package to Ukraine. An official with the National Security Council wouldn't give specifics about the package, but did call it substantial. And you can stay tuned for an interview on the controversial decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine. That's coming up. And we also have former President Trump suffering a legal setback. The Justice Department reversed its earlier position in E. Jean Carroll's defamation lawsuit. And some 1,500 sticking points in the passage of the House Defense Spending Bill. Amendments to the package have members from both parties worried if it can pass before the deadline. Welcome back. China-based hackers have breached email accounts at two dozen organizations, including some U.S. government agencies. The full scope of the hack is being investigated, but U.S. officials at Microsoft have been working to assess the impact of the hack and contain the fallout. Officials say the hack was an apparent spying campaign aimed at acquiring sensitive information. China has been labeled as the most advanced of U.S. adversaries in cyberspace. The FBI says Beijing has a larger hacking program than all other governments combined. The Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C. did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Former President Trump suffered a legal defeat yesterday. The Justice Department reversed its earlier position in columnist Eugene Carroll's defamation lawsuit against Trump. The Justice Department on Tuesday said that former President Trump can be held personally liable for his remarks in columnist Eugene Carroll's defamation lawsuit. Previously, the department had agreed with Trump's attorneys that he was protected from the lawsuit by the Westfall Act. It's an act that provides federal employees absolute immunity from lawsuits brought over conduct occurring within the scope of their employment. The move allows the case to move forward. It had been delayed by appeals over whether Trump could be held liable for statements he made while president. In May, a jury in New York concluded Trump sexually abused Carol in the 1990s, but didn't rape her. The jury also concluded Trump defamed Carol with comments he made about her and her claims. The jury awarded Carol $5 million in damages. Trump denied her allegation of rape and said he didn't know her. In a letter to lawyers for Trump and Carol, Justice Department lawyers said the department has determined that it lacks adequate evidence to conclude the former president was acting within the scope of his employment. In the letter, the DOJ lawyers cited the jury's verdict, Trump's October deposition, and new claims Carol has made since the verdict. She claims that Trump defamed her again with comments he made during a CNN town hall a day after the verdict. From legal matters to the tech space, artificial intelligence, some tout its benefits while warning of its dangers, lawmakers yesterday were hoping to get a better understanding of this emerging technology. The Senate held a first-ever classified briefing on it, and today's Molina Wise Cup was at the Capitol. This is a very new topic for Congress to tackle. Lawmakers repeatedly said they feel like this will be very difficult to regulate. And even if it is regulated here at home, it's almost impossible to uh, prevent malpractices from happening abroad. Now, other concerns that lawmakers have on the impact here at home, they say they're concerned about how it will impact children, how uh, the data collection will go, or if there's any incorrect data inputs that could create problems down 
the line. Now, Senator Rubio focused a lot on the economic impact, saying that it will replace uh, high intellectual jobs. And he repeatedly said that over and over again. I asked him if this is such a concern for him. Is there a way that Congress could prepare for this and possibly cushion the economic impacts? He said the only solution is really to prep the workforce for a transition. So here's what Senator Rubio had to say about his concerns as well as others. I think one of the things we're not talking about is how disruptive it will be economically. AI will do to higher educated workers in some fields what uh, uh, you know, globalization did to workers in American factories. It's going to put some people out of work. It'll create new jobs, but it's going to eliminate some jobs. It, you know, anything that's harvesting massive amounts of data, you can always potentially use the data incorrectly. Um, the, the AI does operate off a set or set of patterns, and the, the patterns can be wrong, right? So what is the, what's the validation of AI-related content? Um, there's tremendous intellectual property concerns. So the senators were briefed today in a, the first of its kind uh, closed door briefing on this issue. They were briefed by the director of national intelligence and the deputy secretary of defense. The overall goal here was really to get all senators up to speed on how AI is actually being used here in the U.S. And some senators we spoke to said that they feel they learned a lot more from this briefing than they did other types of briefings. For example, Senator Roger Marshall says that he actually learned that we're actually leading in the world when it comes to innovation in this area. But that raises the question of intellectual property theft, because we know that's been a big issue with Chinese Communist Party officials. The DOJ has taken some action on that as well. I asked Marshall if, you know, he feels the administration's doing enough to prevent this from happening. He said no, but this is why Senate Leader Chuck Schumer says Congress needs to take action to make sure the U.S. stays number one in the world with this new tech. Take a look. So I'd probably be more concerned about China's ability to steal our property than what they're going to innovate themselves. Congress working with the private sector to make sure that we innovate way ahead of everybody else, but at the same time that there are safeguards so that innovation doesn't get out of control or be used for negative purposes is very, very real as well. It's going to be one of the hardest tasks that Congress has ever faced. So Schumer has been pushing a bill uh, that he says does have bipartisan support. But from the senators that we spoke with, we asked about this bill and the likelihood of it passing during this Congress. They said that they are very uh, not familiar with this specific bill, but they say they do have an open mind. They say they just need to learn more about how legislation could actually move, as well as just learn more about the overall role that artificial intelligence actually plays in our nation right now. The U.S. House of Representatives is in disagreement over the advancement of its annual defense authorization bill. The package outlines policy and budget for the Department of Defense. So far, the bill faces major hurdles. Around 1,500 amendments were submitted to be combed through by the House Rules Committee yesterday. Amendments include the reinstatement of troops who refuse to comply with the Pentagon's vaccine mandate and a ban on drag shows on military bases. Some of the provisions the White House took issue with were bans on funding for critical race theory in the military and merit-based promotions. The bill gives military personnel a 5.2% raise and puts a special inspector general in place to look over U.S. aid to Ukraine. The number of amendments have members from both parties concerned about a timely passage. 
McCarthy is also under pressure from Democrats who want a bipartisan solution. The new Democrat coalition of around 100 House members is urging McCarthy to reject GOP hardliners and pass the annual defense bill before the looming deadline. Votes on the $886 billion package are scheduled to start today. GOP leaders hope to pass the final bill by the end of the week. The Federal Reserve Bank recently launched phase one of a new instant payment platform called FedNow. Entities Daniel Monahan spoke with blockchain enthusiast and best-selling author Jeff Richfield about whether the move means increased federal control. FedNow is billed as a platform that allows financial institutions to provide safe and efficient instant payment services 24-7. But critics say it is the first step on a slippery slope towards a digital currency and increased control over what people buy and sell. Presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wrote on Twitter, The Fed just announced it will introduce its FedNow central bank digital currency in July. CBDCs grease the slippery slope to financial slavery and political tyranny. Jeff Richfield fears a Chinese-style credit score use of a digital currency to subjugate citizens. So if they don't like the amount of meat we're buying, maybe you won't get as much meat that, way, that day at the grocery store. Or let's say you vote for a Trump and they don't like that, then maybe they uh, put some penalties on you. They might inform you, but it's really about Fed control rather than Fed now. And warns of the state turning the screw through increased surveillance. More control, more ops, and then you have AI on top of all that to add to their ability to tap in, listen to conversations, um, pull things out of emails, you know, scrape stuff like that, Twitter. Richfield, the author of I Am I Have, doesn't believe the transition to FedNow will be smooth and thinks people should prepare some cash savings in case of any bumps in the road or any forced bank holidays. The entrepreneur says people are meant to have an abundant life. That doesn't mean all money. Abundant life is wealth, health, relationships. And that's what I teach people. It's kingdom foundations in business, in life, and it's the people you meet. It's about doing things with integrity and, <laughs> and basically having a moral compass. And he tries to teach people to work with money using spiritual principles. The currency of compassion and the currency of kindness and generosity is the currency of the kingdom. And so when you ask how does it work in the kingdom financially, this is the things I teach. So we basically help people become a conduit so money flows through them to others. Richfield says he has set up a trust called Fond of Giving based on these teachings. We look at uh, people's business plans and it is sort of like a kingdom shark tank, if you will. And if we like what we see and we pray about it and we feel like it's kingdom inspired, we'll He'll help fund a, a business. So that's why they call me the Godpreneur. So Godpreneur is mixing entrepreneurship with kingdom. Authorities deny that FedNow involves any central bank digital currency program. However, the Biden administration did sign an executive order mandating that federal agencies explore the process of implementing a digital currency last year. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Stay tuned for more coverage on the decision to send controversial cluster bombs to Ukraine. It has lawmakers in Washington split. We hear from an expert what goes into the move and the political and moral considerations. And vaccine maker Moderna has signed a deal with China. It allows the company to make mRNA drugs in the country. That story and more after the break. The stories that need to be told, 
The voices that need to be heard. The truth you need to see. Get unbiased and in-depth news. Don't miss a beat. I'm Stephanie Cox at NTD. We're here for you. What is China like really? Is it defined by its giant economy, an oppressive government, or its people? By the worst persecutors or the most courageous freedom fighters? We're lifting the veil to look at global impacts and how close the regime is to your doorstep. From eyewitnesses and analysts, get the facts. Here on China in Focus. Good to have you back with us. The controversial decision for the U.S. to send cluster bombs to Ukraine is drawing both support and outrage from lawmakers. A professor we spoke to highlights the need to understand the context surrounding the use of these weapons that have been banned by over 100 countries because of the threat to civilians. Take a look. Please welcome Professor Olena Lennon at the University of New Haven. It's great to have you with us, Professor. Thanks for having me back. California Representative Barbara Lee said using cluster bombs is not a good idea. She said it should never be used and that using them is crossing the line. So what sort of factors go into the assessment as to whether or not they should be sent over to Ukraine? Right. Well, cluster munitions or depicums um, have a dark history indeed, and, and those concerns are justifiable and understandable. But I think context is uh, very important here. In the context of Ukraine's war against Russian occupying forces, uh, depicums make uh, cluster munitions have, uh, you know, military sense. Um, they also make, uh, you could even argue, they make political sense and, and even moral sense uh, in a way because uh, Ukraine is um, fighting against deeply entrenched um, Russian forces um, have been their defenses for um, you know, more than a year now. Um, and Ukraine has been suffering from uh, ammunition shortfalls. So in, in some ways, providing cluster munitions will allow Ukrainians to um, minimize casualties, to use fewer conventional munitions that the United States has actually been running out of as well. So part of the problem here is that because um, Russia remains uh, a firepower heavy um, uh, type of a military, uh, despite their losses, they have fielded a lot more artillery pieces in Ukraine. Um, so Ukraine has been unable to keep... And Professor Elena, Democratic Senator Chris Coons is mirroring some of what you're saying, and he says he backs Biden's what he calls tough call, and he said Ukraine is quickly running out of these artillery ammo and that they may lose the counteroffensive if they run out. So what's the relationship between the United States stockpile and Ukraine's and the use of these cluster bombs? Right. The United States has committed uh, to sustaining Ukraine's ability to defend its territory, but also the United States signaled that it supports the Ukrainian counteroffensive um, that has been underway for uh, more than a month now, but it has been going much more slowly than had been anticipated. Uh, so, so to help Ukraine kind of maintain this momentum and to sustain the fight uh, and to prevent the Russians from advancing any further and regaining momentum and rebuilding their forces, the United States resorted to this sort of a, a, a stopgap measure um, while they are working out, um, you know, uh, defense and industrial mechanisms to provide more munitions, conventional munitions to Ukraine. Um, so these uh, these munitions, these uh, depicums, are expected to help Ukraine break through Russian defenses 
uh, minimize casualties and, and also uh, potentially dislodge Russian forces that have been deeply entrenched in Ukraine. And keep in mind, too, that Ukraine um, has provided written guarantees to the U.S. government um, that they will be keeping track of, of, of these munitions, of where they had been fired, and, and that demining uh, de processes have already been underway. Uh, and that the Russians have actually been using cluster munitions in Ukraine for much longer, um, including against civilian populations. So, um, and what you touched uh, on there is very important. And also Jake Sullivan, White House National Security Advisor, said that Ukraine is not going to use these in populated areas, nor in Russia. Now, there are concerns that children are at risk if these duds stay around. So it was great having you on the show today. Professor Olena Lennon of New Haven University, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Vaccine maker Moderna has signed a deal with China. This will allow the company to work towards researching, developing, and manufacturing mRNA medicines in China. Moderna earlier today signed a memorandum of understanding and a land collaboration agreement with the city of Shanghai. This comes after the company's CEO, Stefan Bansel, met with Shanghai's top officials. The deal could be worth around $1 billion, and it marks Moderna's first expansion into mainland China. The drug maker said medicine produced under the agreement will be exclusively for the Chinese people and will not be exported. The latest deal comes as Moderna revenue growth slows sharply due to slow global demand for its COVID-19 vaccine, which is the company's only approved product. Moderna in February forecasts a possible net loss for 2023. And top military officials from the U.S., South Korea and Japan met for a rare meeting at Camp Smith in Hawaii. The meeting yesterday came as North Korea launched its latest ballistic missile test. The missile was launched towards the Sea of Japan and occurred at the conclusion of the meeting. This year, North Korea test fired its first ever solid fuel intercontinental ballistic missile. It also failed in its attempt to launch its first ever spy satellite on a new launch vehicle. North Korea's use of ballistic missile technology, including for satellite launches, is banned by the UN Security Council. Kim Yo-jong, the sister of North Korea's regime leader, said yesterday that a U.S. spy plane repeatedly entered North Korea's exclusive economic zone and warned such flights may be shot down. A U.S. defense official who spoke anonymously said the planes were not flying in North Korea's economic zone and said North Korea's threats are unlikely to manifest. And now let's get to some short headlines from around the world. Russia launched a wave of kamikaze drone attacks on Kyiv and other cities for a second night in a row. This while Zelensky is at the NATO summit. Ukraine's military said most were shot down. Meanwhile, a report says a top Russian general was killed in an airstrike by a British-supplied missile in a Russian-occupied territory. And Germany said it found traces of subsea explosives in samples taken from a yacht. They suspect it may have been used to transport the explosives to blow up the Nord Stream gas pipelines. Diplomats in the letter to the UN wrote it's not possible to reliably establish the identity of the perpetrators and their motives. Moscow, Ukraine and Western governments have denied involvement. Torrential rain triggered severe landslides and flash floods in India, causing massive damage and leaving many tourists stranded. At least 72 people have died in floods and landslides in the region. 
Paris's famous Notre Dame Cathedral has moved one step closer to restoration. Part of the new wooden framework was delivered on site by boat on the Seine River. The hundred or so trusses needed to rebuild the great roof were made using medieval techniques and 1,200 oak trees. The cathedral is scheduled to reopen to the public in December 2024. And coming up, junk fees, withholding perks and opening accounts without customer permission. Bank of America has agreed to a hefty payout to settle multiple claims with regulators. And an hours-long hostage standoff in Las Vegas ends. We have some wild footage of furniture being thrown out a window at Caesars Palace, so stay tuned for that. Welcome back. The manhunt for an escaped Pennsylvania inmate continues. The homicide suspect used bedsheets to rappel out of a Pennsylvania jail. This after climbing up a pull-up machine to gain access to the building's roof. Michael Burham has been on the run since last Thursday after his escape from the Warren County Jail near the Allegheny National Forest. Around 200 law enforcement officers are searching for the self-taught survivalist. Police say Burham is considered armed and dangerous and warn people not to approach him. Bank of America on Tuesday agreed to pay $250 million in fines. The payment is compensation to settle claims the bank systematically double-charged customers' fees, withheld promised credit card perks, and opened accounts without customer authorization. Authorities say Bank of America reaped hundreds of millions of dollars by charging multiple fees to customers who did not have enough funds in their accounts from February 2018 until February 2022. Regulators say consumers could not reasonably expect or understand they would be hit with a $35 fee each time the bank declined to pay a single transaction. They also say employees of the bank illegally applied for and enrolled customers in credit card accounts. Regulators added that the bank failed to make good on promised cash rewards and bonus points to tens of thousands of customers as well. And in Las Vegas, an hours-long standoff at the Caesars Palace Resort, a man was arrested and a woman described as his hostage was released unharmed yesterday. Las Vegas police say the standoff began around 9.15 a.m. That's when hotel security said a man and a woman were arguing and that the man pulled the woman into a room by force. The man said he was armed, prompting a SWAT team to secure the hallway outside the room. A chair, cushions and other objects were thrown from a broken 21st floor window, frightening guests in a swimming pool area below. One onlooker told the Associated Press it looked like the man emptied the room of furniture. No injuries were reported. Police did not immediately say if the man in custody had actually been armed. Wow. That's some development there. I hope everyone's okay. That was down there below. Mm, Scary, scary situation for sure. Yeah. And another story here. Half of millennials and a majority of the Gen Z population have more than one source of income. That's according to a survey released this year. A business expert and lawyer told Entities David Lamb that high costs are pushing today's young adults to get a side hustle. From finding an extra job, delivering takeout, or doing rideshare, it's quite common for today's young adults to have a side hustle, meaning they earn more money in addition to their main source of income. That's according to a survey recently released. 
The May 2023 survey from Bankrate says that 50% of millennials, people born between 1981 to 1996, said they earn extra income on the side. And for Generation Z, those born after 97, ages 18 to 26, 53% earn income on the side. Katie Charleston, business and intellectual property expert and lawyer, says she sees a trend on the West Coast that's gaining momentum across the country. There is, there's definitely a trend for online side hustles. Um, you know, we've got Silicon Valley there, and, and it's very much a high-tech world out in California. And so we're seeing a lot of individuals turn to things like Amazon seller accounts, but also influencers. Charleston believes many recent college graduates coming out of the pandemic have turned to an online platform to make money. She's seeing them make careers out of the side gigs. What's driving up the trend of getting a side hustle? According to a survey by Deloitte, nearly 40% of Gen Z and millennials say they feel stressed or anxious at work all or most of the time. I think it's twofold. I think on, on one side of it, you have employers expecting as much effort as possible during the work hours and beyond to fulfill the role of a position um, because of extensive costs which are due to inflation and that would be the second reason that the employees are looking for side hustles as well inflation's at you know all-time highs and so we're seeing individuals who have been able to afford housing and childcare and groceries now face these inflated prices. Charleston said the prices of groceries and fuel pushed people to finding a way to supplement their incomes to survive in today's economy. And for those that want to run a business, Charleston advises to get things written down. For the younger entrepreneurs, it's important to remember to get things in writing. I think it is so easy today um, to try and you know do everything on sort of a handshake, which is the old-fashioned way. So the importance of having agreements in writing, whether that is with employees, contractors, vendors, etc., is is key to limit potential disputes in the future. The survey also found that 39% of U.S. adults have a side hustle. I know some of us may have an extra source of income or even considered getting one. It is nice to have that extra cushion just to get by. Now, out of the generation surveyed, baby boomers, who are ages 59 to 77, have the smallest percentage of side hustles, 24%. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. U.S. shoppers could be in for a treat. Amazon yesterday launched this year's Prime Day. The 48-hour event offers deeper discounts on a wide range of goods and services. This year, for the first time ever, the company is also offering travel discounts. Here's Entity's Cost Jimenez. This year's Prime Shopping Day event is projected to surpass the previous year's events. So I'm really excited about kind of up to 50% off uh, televisions, up to 50% off the top selling toys, up to 75% off uh, Amazon devices. So a really wide variety of great deals and there's something for everyone. Last year's event saw U.S. online sales reach nearly $12 billion, up by more than 8% from the year before. Amazon is already facing stiff competition. Retailer Walmart is offering extensive deals during its Plus Week, which began on Monday. Also on Monday, Best Buy launched its Black Friday and July savings event. 
Yet despite competition in the market, Amazon is making an effort to remain a key player in the game. Amazon had the enviable position of being a huge winner during COVID. Their business, as we all know, just spiked at unbelievable rates. They caught consumers that they've never had before. Therefore, their business went through the ceiling. And now, as department stores saw in the 90s, they have to keep up these sales. According to Bank of America projections, this year's Prime Day will generate $12 billion in gross merchandise value for Amazon in the U.S. The company is planning yet another Prime Day event in the fourth quarter of this year. The date, however, has not yet been released. Cost MNS, NTD News. Well, but not all deals are good deals, so it's suggested to also consider other retailers since Amazon isn't the only one that has great value these days. And don't feel pressured to buy things just because something's on sale. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, there are other seasonal sales that are around the corner, like Labor Day's Black Friday might be a good chance to buy some electronics. That's right. And still to come, we hear from the founder and CEO of Thinking Huts about what inspired her to start the nonprofit as a teen and how she's bringing education to those in need. So get that story in just a minute. Okay, the moment we've been waiting for. I can't wait to hear more about this 3D printing. Oh yeah, great that you're excited. Well, we're gonna hear the story of the founder and CEO of Thinking Huts. She started that nonprofit as a teenager and now years down the line, she tells us what inspired her and what's next. On joining me now is Maggie Grout for more. She is the founder and CEO of Thinking Huts. Good morning, Maggie. Can you start by telling me more about how all of this started? Yeah, so from the very beginning, I was born in a rural village in China. So I grew up knowing um, like what poverty does look like and how fortunate I was to have access to education. Um, I was later adopted around two years old. So I grew up the majority of my life in the US and I just saw how transformational education had been in my life. And that's what led me to then starting Thinking Huts when I was 15. Um, and I really wanted to make a difference by increasing access to opportunities for children in similar situations. Mm. And what effect do you want to have on the communities that you work with? You know, I mean, you're building schools for them, but what exactly is it that you want to give to those communities? The end goal would be to empower them with tools um, to then go on and achieve more opportunities in their lives. Um, I think sometimes people approach charity work as it being more of a dependency thing, but that's not our goal. We want them to go on and not need us anymore. And I think that's something I try to emphasize to anybody I do talk to, um, that maybe is what sets us apart, that we don't want to exist, um, because that means we would have solved the issue we had set out to solve. Can you share some of the criteria numbers that you saw um, that really indicated how much they needed a school or you guys to step in? Um, so I would say 
a lot of it um, is maybe not so quantitative, but qualitative. So um, asking people what is their needs there, because I had considered several different countries when I first started out, and I found out the education crisis itself is quite expansive. Um, but in Madagascar, the number one need happens to be infrastructure, whereas other countries, it might be teachers or cultural barriers that are um, prohibiting education access from occurring. And then in terms of the communities itself, um, we've actually had people reaching out to us and we just cannot um, serve all of the needs for the schools that we receive. But the main factors probably would be the logistical feasibility because of the technology component. So how close is it to port and how many people it can be serving? Because right now we're focusing more on campuses. So printing multiple of these hot classrooms in one construction period to try to get cost savings as well. So those are the main factors we do typically take into account, um, as well as how it can grow with the community, um, because sometimes it may not make sense to just print one, um, and you have to be more in a central location too. So for this next project, it will be serving three villages um, on the west coast of Madagascar. Now what's next with Thinking Huts? What is the next milestones that you have your eyes on? Um, so for the short term, we're in development for the Honeycomb campus. So this is the full scale vision that we're currently raising support for. And so this, this will be incorporating solar power and also other facilities like um, water sanitation facilities, because we think beyond just the school building to make make sure that it really is going to thrive long term. And then um, after that, we're looking more seriously to scale to other countries. We've received requests from maybe over about 15 um, countries at this point. So there's a huge need. It's just a matter of bridging the gap, I think, for philanthropic support. But more seriously, would be we would be looking at Kenya because it's more similar in terms of um, I think Madagascar and government factors, and then also um, I think socioeconomic things too, that we also have to take into account um, beyond the need for the school itself. Yeah, so many things to consider and all the best with that. I just think it's incredible and very admirable at looking at all the things they have reached at your age. And I think especially also that you're able to say that you're making a change in this world. So thank you so much, Maggie Grad. I really appreciate your time today and sharing this with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. You know, they're really doing big things over there. And you know, with the 3D technology, the students are seeing what's possible now. And they're actually, she said, they're actually starting to consider maybe pursue something in their life that they didn't think it was an option, like entrepreneurship, like innovation. Yeah, so she's inspiring them and talking about someone that really understands the importance of education and just filling a need, really. And yeah, a need, <laughs> like a really big one that she says they're not always able to even, you know, so, well, if anybody's interested, um, just check them out online. It's, it's called Thinking Huts. It seems like they need a lot of help, so yeah. Very productive endeavor. All right, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. Shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.